Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to get those ready as we'll be turning to the Gospel of Luke in the fourth chapter. We'll be looking at the first 13 verses of that as we make our way through this Gospel together. Uh, We were uh, last here, uh, last week, we were at the end of Luke chapter 3. That was the genealogy of Christ, and especially what we get out of there is what it teaches about Him. It uh, proved that Jesus is not only the son of David, He is the Messiah, He is the King, but He's also the son of Adam. He's a son of man, as Luke so much relates to. Um, Adam had a a unique relation in the way that he was created. And, of course, he is the son of God, as it says in there. Another miraculous birth was Jesus as far as coming into this uh, humanity, this world. And so he had a unique relationship to um, humanity. A relationship with actually with Adam, who is the Son of God. So he, the Messiah is the Son of Adam and also the Son of God. He relates to man, that's us, and he relates to God because he is God. Adam is known as the first Adam. And Jesus is known as the second Adam. And thank the Lord, we have a second Adam. A human, a man that we can relate to. Uh, Genealogy plays a big part in showing us the person of Christ. So that's what we showed last week. Uh, Seemingly unimportant as it looks, it's very important. Because it's another credential that Jesus is deity, He is God. Luke has been building up on that... um, verse after verse after verse. Now, this genealogy that we looked at last week is right. It's kind of like there's a sandwich here because if you go back before the genealogy, you had the baptism, right? And in Matthew and Mark, they jump from the baptism immediately into the temptation, which is where we're going to be at today. But Luke went and put the genealogy in there, and I think he's impressing upon us Here is not only the Son of God, but here's the Son of Man who's going to be sent out into the wilderness. And so He's like us. And He was tempted like we are. So do you see what Luke did in that? Amongst many other things. He's definitely proving that He's the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of God. But He's the Son of Adam also in that He's in the human race. I think that uh, is helpful in us identifying with who He is, with Him being uh, God, but also man. We identify with that, don't we? And in that genealogy, we saw that also that not only is Joseph his earthly, quote, father, but he had a grandfather, a great-grandfather, and just keep on going back. Great-great-great-grandfather. Just keep on going all the way back to not only David, but to Adam. So Jesus is related him, related to him in, in, in all those ways. So in this section now, we're going to go from the genealogy with that thought, knowing that immediately as he had been in the baptism and the Father saying, Thou art my Son in whom I am well pleased, he now goes into the desert. The Father is pleased with the Son, and so He sends the Spirit to Him so that He would send Him to where we're going to be looking at today, this wilderness. As He had just come out of that magnificent baptism, the baptism is bringing Him forth into His ministry, isn't it? And just before He gets into that full-out public ministry comes this temptation. He's inaugurated into his ministry now, and now he faces temptation. That's what happened immediately after that. You know what? We know all, every one of us here, too full well of what it is to be tempted. Because we all are tempted. We all sin. Jesus was tempted, he never sinned, he could not sin. We have battles. We really have struggles. So as we look at this story we're very familiar with, may it relate to our lives today in a consistent manner knowing that our 
Our war is on. And I will tell you, the enemy is out to destroy you and to leave you hanging over the precipice. As Jonathan Edwards talked about, going over uh, wood that is rotten and ready to fall into hell. But if you're a believer, we know that that does not happen. But I will say that Satan will take you as far as he possibly can. Jesus Christ is our great example. He's our teacher to resist this temptation. Have you been ready to give up, quit? It's to deal with the Christian life. It's not bringing me any joy. I think it's all fakery. I think it, I think there's nothing to this. I don't even know why I even bother anymore. You ever been there? God forbid. But if you do, don't let it go any further because what will happen is that you will quit reading the Word of God, which you probably already have. You will quit praying. You will quit fellowshipping. And the enemy will have a field day with you. And you're not Jesus. You can have the Holy Spirit, but if you're not filled with His Word, you don't have the Holy Spirit there to help you. He's there, but He's not helping you because the Word of God filling us is how we're filled with the Spirit. So, this is a very applicable passage. And don't just write it off saying, I know this passage. This is one passage that we want to look at Christ and be amazed. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus Christ because He is like no man ever. And He is showing us how we can beat this temptation. And let me tell you, the enemy loves to get you in the wilderness in a desolate place where there is nobody and He will do a big number on you. Christ is our example. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15 says. Jesus is confirmed by Luke as the righteous Son of God. Right at the outset of His ministry, He's shown that. And He teaches us how to follow Him in obedience to the Father. This is a matter of obedience from the Son to the Father. And He's learning obedience. It's another Hebrews passage. We'll probably get to that in a moment. This is so applicable to us, folks. If you're a Christian, we need this. We need it badly. Do you know how much was at stake here whenever Christ was out in that wilderness? If He would have failed... If he would have failed, and he was not, but if he would have, he would have been in the same class as the first Adam. Where does that leave us? He can't go to the cross. If he can't beat this in the wilderness, he certainly can't go to the cross. We need this. We need to see Christ win this. The second Adam. He would have had no new people. New creations. He would have not had them. But if Jesus succeeds in that combat, and we know He does, He will liberate a new group of people. People that are chosen. Set them free. A people who will learn from Him how to do battle with the enemy. How to do battle with Satan as He takes you into the dark realms of your Christian walk and your journey that goes into the wilderness. People who will live with Him someday in a world that is renewed. Here in Luke 4, 1-13, in this wilderness, we see our commander-in-chief out in the wilderness, in the trenches, just like we have battles in the trenches every day. We're going to see Him turn back the enemy and He's teaching us how to do the same. Are you willing to do what Jesus does, right? That's what this passage is about. Are you really committed to Christ and His Word? Let's uh, grab those Bibles now. Let's stand. Turn to Luke 4. Thank You, Lord, for giving us this Word as it has true meaning to every one of us here. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. 
and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, in a moment of time, The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And he led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will rear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Lord, thank You for this passage because this is our life. A life in the wilderness. On a journey. Waiting for home. In the meantime, we are confronted by the enemy in desolate places. Help us to realize that. Help us that we can only turn to You. And that is the only answer. Help us to be able to know Your Word, to be able to use it whenever those times come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you're all familiar with this passage, right? And what an amazing Jesus we have for He did it. Of course, everybody else would say, yeah, but He was God. But He was tempted in every way like we are, but without sin. So we're going to first look at the preparation for battle. I'm going to show you here in a moment. I'm going to go to this just a little short glimpse of video to show where he went and put yourself into this place. He moves out from the Jordan River where there's water. Kind of lush around certain areas there. Even the John the Baptist spent time in the wilderness. He also had to baptize in the Jordan River. So we have an event here that's following another event. Baptism. Temptation. These are highlight points of Jesus' life. He's learning obedience. He received affirmation from the Father. He's instantly led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Spirit did that on purpose. It's where He's going to be tempted. What's the significance of this? Well, baptism launched Him into ministry. Up to now, He's been living quietly in Nazareth. Very few people really know who He really is. They have no idea. He's going to come on into this world in in a way, as far as ministry is concerned, that is totally surprising to most people. A lot of people have been lulled into a sense of complacency. That's sin, folks. Just being complacent. Being a Christian for many years, maybe. And we can become complacent. This speaks to us all. We've been there. We've been in the wilderness. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, He was filled with the Holy Spirit up to the brim and flowing over. We see this Spirit already mentioned in the book of Luke. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 15, we cannot do the Christian walk without being filled with God's Spirit. For He will be great, speaking of John the Baptist, in the sight of the Lord, and He will drink no wine or liquor, and He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. That means all the time. Matter of fact, all the time. 
every moment filled with the Spirit. Verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist is in her womb. We have Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she says something that was amazing. Came from God. Blessed are you, one woman. She speaks to Mary. Verse 67, same chapter. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, There's John the Baptist, there's Zechariah, there's Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit. That's an ongoing thing in Luke that we see in the very first chapter. And here's what Christians are commanded to do. Commanded. No, no, no choice. No second choice or anything. He says, do not get drunk with wine. Don't let it fill you. Don't let it command you. When you're filled with that, it will control you, your thinking, your life. And that's why he says specifically, don't get drunk. Don't do you. Be careful. Careful. For that's dissipation. It's ruin. But be filled with the Spirit. It's one or the other. Be filled with the Spirit. You know what happens when you do that? You start speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, mm-hmm. singing, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord. If you were filled with the Spirit, do you know what you did today? You sang to the Lord. You did that. And always giving thanks for things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God even the Father. Being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then it goes on even in the marriage. Be filled with the Spirit and how it fruits out in every aspect of your life. So here in Luke 4, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. He was led around by the Spirit. He leaves the Jordan Valley. There's a steep slope, plateau on which Jerusalem is like a, a mile up. Um, when you get down to the Dead Sea, you're speaking like 1,500 feet below sea level. And it's a tremendous climb if you go from Jericho to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, and a short uh, 18 miles, something like that. You go so far up. And you know what? It's not that somehow Jesus falls into the devil's clutches here. The Spirit of God is leading him there. That sounds so backward. Why would the Spirit of God send the Son of God into such a forlorn place? That's not that Jesus made some kind of a bad choice in going out there. Whoa, what is this place? He's in total control of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has got him. The Spirit takes him right into the wilderness, right from the Jordan. Where there's plenty of water, there's plenty of people to preach to. And where does he go? He's gone into the isolation area. Nobody's out there. This is all the purpose of God. The purpose of God is that he would be saturated with the Spirit. And it says he was full of Spirit. And he was led around by the Spirit. Or he was impelled. Or better yet, expel. The word in the Greek is really interesting. It's ek balo. Ek, exit, out. Balo, I think of to throw. You know what the Holy Spirit did? Threw him out into the wilderness. You know what? Ek balo. He was literally cast out into the wilderness. This is God's plan. Spirit was purposely sending him into the wilderness. This is the exact opposite of the way that humans would have done. You know what? It's not that Satan goes out after him. God is on the offensive here, folks. He went Satan, even though Satan comes to him and does the temptations, he goes right into the area where Satan 
You can't do his worst damage. Physically, I mean, you know, in, in, in this area. Right into the wilderness, the purpose of God. God Himself brought him into this confrontation. He set the forces into motion that would bring Jesus and Satan face to face. Why? Well, I think one thing, it's to prove that Jesus could not be made to sin. It's like God saying, Satan, do your worst damage. Bring it on. Come on. This is what he's doing. He's going right into like his house, in a sense, this wilderness. Bring your greatest temptations forward. Come on, hit me. As the song went, hit me with your best shot. And they're not going to go to any avail. They didn't. The first Adam was tempted. Where? In a luscious garden. Plenty of water. Plenty of food. And he succumbed to the temptation. The second Adam, and remember the genealogy? He's the son of Adam. He's the second Adam. The last Adam shall be tempted and he will not yield. Now what we want to do here is just take a glimpse, a few seconds here of this wilderness and get an idea of where he was really at. And this is like, I don't know, I think something like 15 miles by 30 miles, that area. And this is really what you see. You see ravines, you'll see peaks, valleys. There's really nothing out there, is there? Do you see anything there that would draw anybody to just kind of spend a vacation there? (laughs) This is the most desolate place on the face of the earth. There is nothing like this place. It's an arid desert. It's a wilderness between the mountains of Judea and the Dead Sea. The elevation drops over 3,000 feet from the mountains down to the shores of the Dead Sea. That's the lowest spot on the earth. It, it, if you saw that, you didn't see sandy dunes, did you? When you think of desert, you think of white sands out in New Mexico, you know? That's a desert. But this place is broken and it's twisted mass of gorges, rocky gorges, jagged limestone cliffs, the glimmering heat of the day and the freezing temperatures of the night, a burning oven to a freezer, shrieking winds that come through that desert. The ravines, loose rock all over the place. If you're walked in loose rock and you can't even hardly walk to take the next step, you, you sink down. All in that area is rock and rock and more rock. It's jagged, it's ragged, it's craggy. Peaks with severe ravines. You saw it there, right? It's dry. It's barren. It's forlorn. It's desolate. It is lonely there. So terrible was this parched land, the Jews called it Yeshimon. It means a place of desolation. Desolation. A place of destruction. A place of death. This nightmare of jagged ridges and narrow little areas was where one of the greatest battles of all time was fought. You take this backdrop of this wilderness that that we just saw there. It's isolated. It's so remote. And two figures come to do battle. This is the battle that has not been done before. On one side you have the Royal Highness, the Prince and Power of the Air, the ruler of this world, What a heavyweight fight. His name is Satan. To be honest with you, he's a lightweight. On the other side came King Jesus, the Messiah. This is our Savior. The Son of God, the promised King of Israel, is on the other side. 
This is the first time, folks, in thousands of years of mankind where a man has stood upon the earth and he's without sin to take on Satan. None of us can do it, can we? Except for the help of Holy Spirit. See, uh, Satan kind of took over the earth, the Garden of Eden, where it had been given to Adam and Eve, and he took that. They sinned in the garden. Satan has reigned over the earth. The battle is taking really on Satan's ground. Here in a land that we think of the fruits that were in the Garden of Eden and here we see the fruits of Adam's sin when you look at that desolate wilderness. Look what it did. It stripped the beauty of the earth. Look what it did to this earth. Look what it did to mankind. But after Jesus fasted for 40 days, He takes us on this temptation here. The surroundings of Jesus are really at a disadvantage. He goes to the worst place possible. And He wins the victory. He didn't pick a Garden of Eden to go to. He didn't pick the temple. He picked this place. Now there's nothing in His nature that can respond to sin. And that's that's quite the uh, impeccability, we call it. Impeccability. He's not able to sin. He could not sin. He is God. And he is man. But remember, there is really no ability. He will not sin. He cannot. If it were possible, He could have done it. But the temptation was ever bit as much as what we get. Mark 1 uh, 13 and even 12 and 13. Let's look at that for a moment. Immediately the Spirit impelled him, cast him out, threw him out to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. Now... We have two verses there that Mark gives in on this. It's not as much as what Luke gave. Matthew gave more. Luke even gives more. Did you notice though that wild beasts are also out there? We're talking wild animals. Snakes, scorpions. Nobody spends a vacation or a weekend here. This is not a getaway where you just want to go out and just take it easy for a while. Forty days he goes out there. What a test. Is this a real test? Yes, it is. In every way. Forty days. That number 40 is kind of interesting because you see it throughout the Old Testament. Moses was at Mount Sinai for how long? Forty days while receiving the law of God. Noah... We know the rains fell for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel was in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. The spies were sent into Canaan to spy out the land for 40 days. Jonah's message to Nineveh was repent. If you don't repent, God will destroy you in 40 days. Each of these examples here imply a testing. That's why 4 or 40 is a number of testing. It's kind of a probation, a trial. Testing of Jesus. Now, we see in back in our Luke passage, He was led out there, thrown out into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. So, we see these three temptations, but all throughout those 40 days, He was tempted. Until it finally came to this culmination. And he's very wily, isn't he? The devil. He comes in ways that you wouldn't expect. He's not coming in there like a, a lion or like a snake, even though that's what he is. But it says in James 1.13, and here's our question, it's a crucial question, Jesus being tempted 
says in James 1.13, how can we say that Jesus was tempted here when in James 1.13, Scripture says God cannot be tempted by evil. Jesus is God, so He's tempted by evil. If Jesus was God in the flesh, then how could He be tempted? That word tempted in the Greek here means to solicit to, to sin or to put to a test. Satan is trying to get Jesus to sin, isn't he? It's really what he's doing. Now, it was not a temptation from within. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Jesus didn't have that. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James 1, 1-15 Jesus did not have the nature of sin. Man is born with the nature of sin. Do you see the difference? He could be tempted. He could not sin. Were the temptations real? Oh, you better bet. More than we can even imagine. Jesus has a perfect, sinless nature. Jesus is more than just sinless. He is the righteous one. He was righteous. Still is righteous, isn't He? Forty days of fasting. Think of Elijah who fasted. I think 40 days there and But God provided for him, though. He provided the ravens and they brought food. Jesus became hungry after the 40 days. I think this is a supernatural thing. Uh, your human being cannot go out in a place like that and survive. He's hungry. It does show that he is humanity. But to go out there and go as long as he did... In his physical way, there is something more than what we can imagine in our own lives. It uh, says that he was tired. It says also in Scripture that he wept. Jesus was tired. Jesus wept. You know, very humanity. Look in Hebrews 4.15. He is very much man. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. He can sympathize with us, can he? But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Fully, fully tempted. Very human. He became tired. He wept. Became hungry. I think he is much disciplined, though, also. In John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. My food is this, the will of the Father. That's really what we're talking about, Jesus says. 1 Corinthians 9.27 Here's the way that we beat our sin. He said, man, I'm having a real difficult time with it. Kind of went back into it again. I hate that life. Paul said, I discipline my body. And all those things that come from the body and... And make it my slave. I'm going to make my body serve God. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's discipline, isn't it? That's Paul. Jesus was very disciplined. And so now we get into the temptations themselves. We've seen this preparation for the battle. He's ready, isn't he? The time has come. It's the perfect time. It's right in the plan of God. It's in the purpose of God. 
Do you know that He sends not only His Son into the wilderness, but He sends His people into the wilderness? Have you ever been there? If you're a Christian, you've been in the wilderness. Sometimes it's really dry, it's lonely, it's desolate. Sometimes it seems like it'll never end. It does. But the wilderness is there. If you've been in it once, you've been in it a second time. You'll be on again too. How do we defeat the enemy? Jesus shows us. Verse 3, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. You know, it sounds like he's saying, I doubt if you are really the Son of God. If you are, then do that. Actually, no, that's not what it means. It's not an if. It's really can be translated since you are the Son of God. The devil knows full well who Jesus is. And there's no way that he's going to put any doubt in there to Jesus, you know, if. You know, he says that to Adam and Eve, but here we have Jesus, the very Son of God. You know what Satan is doing here? He's trying to get a little bit of question of the Father's care, the Father's provisions. Uh, doesn't seem like He's really providing now though. Yeah, but look what He's done before. That doesn't matter. Look, you don't know what I'm going through. Oh. Really? I know that Satan works in the same way. And he goes, you know, we might all have our own little weaknesses, but let me tell you, don't act like, yeah, but you don't know the situation I'm in. Don't, don't, don't use that. There's an inappropriate command here. And you saw the wilderness out there in the pictures that we had. And, and you could pick up a rock, and especially after 40 days, that rock could start make, even looking like a <laughs> loaf of bread. <laughs> You know, they're flat, unleavened bread and such. And Satan uses that. Since you're the Son of God, he's assuming that Jesus can act on his own, own will here. Now remember, the Father had just proclaimed 40 days ago, let's say, that He is Son. And in this Son, He's well pleased. That was done at the baptism. Satan will not deny that. But he's saying, you are the Son of God. Why are you going hungry? You don't have to do that. I mean, just like that, you could be eating. It's not a big deal. You need to do that. Man, you, you know, you're starting to lose some weight. He didn't really say that, but... It wasn't in my notes. I just, you know, ad-libbed it. I'm sorry about it. <laughs> Since you are the Son of God... Why are you going hungry? Man, you could, right here, you could have all the food that you would want. We, we know that you're God, you know. Contrast this to the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. A luscious, beautiful place to live. How easy it should have been <laughs> for them. Adam and Eve had everything they needed to eat. It was just, you know, of course, that one fruit, that one tree that they couldn't eat from. They were plenty filled. They had everything they needed plus... They didn't need anything. They had it all. They had it all except that one fruit. But Jesus meets Satan. Where? Out in that forlorn wilderness in the midst of hunger. And I'm talking about real hunger here now, right? He's been tempted all along, but now he's come to a point where he would be at his weakest. When you're, and really, when you're physically hungry, you'll almost do anything for something to eat. He's, he's been deprived all this time. And Jesus responds with the best possible Scripture He could have possibly done. Jesus is the living Word after all, isn't He? Satan, don't you know that? It is written. 
It's in the Scriptures. Man should not live on bread alone. doesn't give an explanation. Satan knows Scripture. He knows that. It comes right out of Deuteronomy 8.3. Satan is making the issue of God's goodness, God's provision, God's care in providing for and protecting for those who are His. And it certainly would be for the Son of God. And He did provide. Took care of Him. By the way, Jesus is still living, isn't He? He provided for Him. Yeah, but not in the way that you know, He usually did. Man does not live on bread alone. That's funny. He took Him all the way to the point of 40 days and you'd have to say, yep, pretty much hungry. One's well-being is not limited to being well-fed. It sure is helpful. And by the way, if you see a really hungry person, and I mean they're starving, they haven't anything to eat for two weeks, what do you do? you give them the gospel first or do you give them food? You give them food. Because they're not going to be able, first of all, to even relate to what you're saying, to even think right. There's obvious reasons. So, you know, food is necessary. But as necessary as food is, it's not as important as being sustained by the Word of God. Are you being sustained by the living Word? Are you dying? Are you starving yourself? Is the Father withholding bread from you? No. You've got it. You've got it more than anybody ever in the history of mankind. You've got it on your phone, wherever you go. You've got it ready there. You, I mean, you can bring it up on almost any situation and you've got it around you always, the Word of God. But this is where it has to be. Because when the time comes, when you're really weak, you have to withdraw it from this very place. You're in the wilderness if you're God's son, what are you depending upon? The Word of God. Christ Himself. The Father cares for you. The Father provides for you. And here we see an exemplary trust that Jesus had in the Father as the test was done. Obviously, remember the wilderness pictures that we had? Nothing out there. Just gray, dark, desolate, hot, dry, arid, cold, winds, falling around from rock to rock, almost falling into a ravine that's hundreds of feet below. You know what? That test shows how willing He was to do the Father's will. Jesus learned obedience. Look at Hebrews 5.8. This is why we go through some of those dark, lonely times individually. But you know what? Like I said last Tuesday night, we dealt with prayer. All of us go through difficult times. Even like the Thessalonians were going through, they were real people. Very young Christians. But you know what? God is the one who picks us up. We have to trust in Him. And we as a church also can go through a wilderness. What are you going to do? Are you going to run? Are you going to skip out? Yeah, you're going to quit? Or are you going to say... I'm here in this situation because this is where God has put me. I'm in a wilderness, but I'm also with God's people who are also going through battles like I go through battles. I need their prayers. I need their help. I need their counsel. Because that's how Jesus works through us too. 
Sometimes when we're alone, we, we trust in Christ alone. But He's given the church. And no matter how small we are, no matter how little, we need each other. We have everything we need. And when we're in dark and lonely places, we can start blaming others. I think uh, that's been done before. I think Adam and Eve did that, didn't they? It's their fault. I think Adam did that. That's, that's the woman that you gave me, right? His church is glorious. It's His church. It's not our church. His church. He, Christ is the head. It's His. So you're, you know, anytime that we start making fun of God's church, we're really blaming God. You know, His church is not. We are on a walk. We're on a journey. It's tough. It's a marathon. But we can get through this. We know because Christ did. We didn't have the temptations as strong and heavy as He did. Have you ever gone 40 days like He did? At a weak point? When we've gotten to our weak point, we have succumbed, haven't we? There have been some times when we were able to starve, to kill it off, to, to choke the sin, the temptation. Praise the Lord. That's victory. That was by the power of God when that happened. Amen. Hebrews 5.8 says this, Although He was a Son, the Son of God, He learned obedience. Do you find that incredible? He learned. I thought He just had it already. But He had to go through these experiences. And when He went through in His humanness, He learned obedience. He knows what it is. It wasn't that He was disobedient. It's whenever those times came, He was able to go through it. Are you in awe of this Jesus Christ? This this man is real. He's our Savior. He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. How do you learn obedience? You go through suffering times. You suffer. Those things are sent for you. For, for me? <laughs> That's from the Father? Yeah. He's always provided for you. I don't know if, they, I don't know if He's doing it now. He's providing. He might be in a 40-day wilderness. He's providing. Sure doesn't look like it. He's providing. He said, you're going to learn through this. Or you don't learn it. And you just keep going through it over and over. You repeat it. You repeat it. You just, boom. Boom. Bounce off the wall. Bounce off. You don't ever go through, through it as He brings you through it to go on. We just keep bouncing off the wall, falling down. Why? You don't have to do that, do we? Well, the second temptation, since Satan didn't win in that one about God's care and provision, it's the Word of God that kept him going. Verse 5, And he led him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. For it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. You liar. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. That's exactly what Satan wanted the most. God worshiping him. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. That's what he wanted. That's what he, he became jealous of God. And here it is. It's time to tell Jesus to worship Him because He is so weak right now, He could, he could get to a point where He'd worship me. Satan, you are really an idiot. You think you can do that, huh? Satan's invitation is really to engage in false worship. What's the very first command? To love the Lord your God. To love Him always. To worship Him is the idea. Satan says he has total authority. So therefore, look, this can be yours. By the way, Luke does something different than Matthew does. Matthew 
takes the third temptation of Luke and puts it into second temptation. And then the, of course, that that uh, you know, follows with the third uh, temptation, and, and that's vice versa. Then, uh, actually, Luke is going to wind up, and and he can do these. He, 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 we've already seen that he takes things sometimes out of a chronological order, and that's okay. You know, as he gives us eyewitness account to him, it it leads us into where we're going. He's going to take us to the temple. In the last one, where, or you know, that high place to jump off and such, the highest place, uh, and then to go from there. So we'll go with what Luke has here. They they both have those three temptations there. Uh, nothing to worry about. It's okay. You can turn those around here and there, and it still be inspired. Um, look what can be yours. You know. James said something about our desires, our lure. We're ensnared into sin because of what's here, and we all, we have our own desires. Satan is trying to lure. He's trying to trap Jesus, to bait the trap, to put on uh, the worm on the hook. That's what he's doing here. That's what he does with us. The devil's offer is deception at best. He's lying here. This is a half-truth. He doesn't have all authority. Yes, He's the prince of the power of the air and He's the ruler of this age. We, we know that. <coughs> Great power. I mean, we could go into a lot of text on that. Of course, He's pictured as a dragon in Revelation 13. But He doesn't have the authority to offer Jesus all of this. Self-delusion that Satan has as if he's giving this away to God. Jesus has a biblical response again. Verse 8, Jesus answered and said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. You worship Yahweh and Him alone. We have a lot of things out there in this world that would love for us to bow the knee because you usually don't get Satan firsthand one-on-one combat. He uses what? The world, the worldly things and all it has to offer, all of its entertainment, the flesh, all the lust of the flesh that it really wants. It's natural. It does what it, it... The nature is there. It impels it to do. Whatever. Just do anything. World, the flesh, the devil. He uses those, doesn't he? And that's worshiping. That's worshiping another being, ourselves. Here's an opportunity for Jesus to grab some power. You remember where He's at. Remember the pictures of the desert. You just renounce God. You possess destructive power. And ultimately, it would mean not possessing power at all, would it? Satan is not worthy of worship. That's obvious. There are so many obvious things as we're Christians, we're reading the Word, we're into that. We're into worshiping God. And there are times when all of a sudden the obvious things are not obvious. What happened? What happened to your drive to follow Christ? You dropped the ball. What happened? What happened? What happened? You know what the Shema of the Jews is in Deuteronomy 6.4? Turn there. They said this every day. Repeated it every day. Three times a day? Hebrews or Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. There's the first command. With all your soul and with all your might. 
basically the same thing as we see in Exodus along that lines that this is God. These words which I command you, commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Always, everywhere. If you have to, put them on the walls. Be reading it, thinking it constantly. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.13 if you're in that same chapter there. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. No other to worship. Let's go to the third temptation and close this out. So there it's dealing with to not trust in God's plan in that second temptation. Not trusting, you know, what about God cannot provide for you, cannot care for you as Satan is doing. And the second one, he says, to not trust God's plan. I've got a plan for you. Here's what you're supposed to do. God's already nailed it what the plan, the purpose is. Third temptation is to trust God presumptuously, forcing God's hand, putting Him to the test. So now Satan, as wild as he is, crafty as he is, he's going to quote a scripture, and he's going to come on the backside now, use the scripture, and say, okay, you force God's hand here. It's a call for the spectacular. God can do that. Jesus can do that. He can do a miracle. So he led him to Jerusalem. Somehow, some kind of visionary thing maybe. Maybe it happened but in a, in a real way. But he stood on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, if you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he does the quote of the Scripture. This is a misuse of Scripture taken out of context. That's what God's false teachers always do. He takes him to the temple. This is the high point of the temple probably. And he's urged to jump. Now if you go into Jerusalem, you go to um, the, the area of that temple mount, all in that area. There's a place called the Royal Porch on the temple southeast corner. It looms over a cliff called Kidron Valley. And there you have some 450 feet below the floor. 450 feet. That's a pretty good jump. Wouldn't you say? 450 feet. Wow. What is that? A third of a mile? Satan now quotes Scripture. Does it himself here. He's perfectly orthodox in that he knows the Word of God. And he's able to pull this out without some kind of phone or some kind of modern technology or he carries a Bible around. He knows the Bible. Satan plans a little private test here of God's faithfulness. It's really testing how faithful God is. Jesus, before you venture out into this ministry now, Satan says, uh, you better be sure that God will take care of you The psalm guarantees your protection. He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. He'll send angels if you're falling. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He'll not land on the land. He'll just pick up, just let you down right there on the ground. He guarantees your protection. So jump. Just do what I say. I'm telling you, do a miracle here. Just let go and let God care of you. Jesus does Deuteronomy again. 6.16 Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus refuses to listen to Satan. That's really what He does. This is a matter of Perfect obedience. He's learning obedience. He draws it from the Word of God. Satan is insisting on a miracle. That's what people want to see. Man, if people would see him do that from the temple, what a way to start your ministry. Do you get it? 
What a way to start a ministry. They see him falling, and you've got hundreds of people in that area. And they look down, and they see the angels come and pick him up, and then bring him back up. And the hundreds of people go, wow, and right there you could start preaching the gospel. Wouldn't that be a way to get things going? And I mean, your cousin saw that and he comes to you and he says, you won't believe what I saw. And you go, no, I don't believe it. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, there are hundreds of other out there that saw it too. Come here. If you heard two or three or four or five different people saying the same thing, would you not believe that too? Jesus is not going to go for this. God has a different plan. The Old Testament background is real significant. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 8, uh, 16 says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Israel had presumed upon God's goodness, doubting why He had even sent them into the desert. He provided for them in the wilderness. There is a promised land, but they're not there yet. But did He provide for them? He gave them food, but He tested them first. How about water? Yeah, He gave them water, plenty of water. But what did He do first? He tested them. But what did they do after they went through that test, not so good? They complained about it. They had tested God at Massa in Exodus 17, 1-7. Don't have enough time to read that. You can read that later on this afternoon if you like. Jesus, though, refused to demand God's protection on His own terms. He knew what God's purpose and plan is. He knew the Word of God. He knew this will of the Father. So a demand that would have been made there would not have been of faith. It would not have been of loyalty to the Father. Matter of fact, it would have been sin. Jesus passed in flying colors. The enemy is defeated. But there's going to be other times throughout Jesus' ministry where He is tempted hugely. But here you see victory. This is a foretaste of what is to come through all the great events of His life, His ministry, all the way up to the point of the cross. And through that, the death, burial, resurrection... And you know what? Because of that, we can believe Him. We can believe in that He is going to conquer Satan fully where He can be seen. He already defeated Him where? At the cross. Conquered Him right there. He conquered Him right here in the wilderness in obedience. It's as if the guarantees of the future are conquerings, that the victories. We know that He established in this event His amazing victory before He goes into public ministry. His temptation in the wilderness when Satan came right at Him with the fullest fury that He could possibly give. He gave everything that He had. The best assaults at the worst place that He could be And He won. Absolutely. This is our victor, folks. you want to follow Him? Or do you want to follow what the world out there has? It looks really good in this world. Yeah, it's, it's it's like really close to that wilderness. I mean, really close is the city of Jericho. It's a place where you can spend in the wintertime. And and by the way, you have palm trees there. Out in the middle of the wilderness, out in the desert, is this place that served as a palace for kings to go for the winter time. We have, we have all these nice things that can be offered to us. And he says, you go through this. I'm with you. I care for you. He withstood triumphantly. He could have gone the short way, but no, there's no way that he could. Jesus had success. He qualifies for ministry, doesn't he? He had his baptism. Now it's time to go through the temptation and he qualified. This is the first of many, many victories of Jesus our Lord. Are you talking about success here? Yes. If we walk with God, wherever He leads us, even in the midst of disastrous times, testing times, 
Remember the loyal, beloved son who trusted in the very love of God. Trusted in His plan. To love God, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is to be faithful to Him when it's easy, when it's a little difficult, when it's very difficult. We need to be faithful. We need to pledge to Him that we will be faithful. We have a victor. We want to serve and worship Him only. Let's pray. Father, Lord, what an amazing man God Jesus is. We are in awe. We stand in awe as we see the very power of God working in Him through some of the worst temptation that could ever, ever be. And He went through it. He is the triumphant one. This is our Lord and Savior. And the biggest test was the cross to the point of death. And because of the resurrection, Lord, because of all Your promises, that's what we have to live for. Because we know it is true. Because Your Word is true in every way. And may we answer back every time with the Word of God when we are tempted to draw upon Your truth. And Your Spirit will get us through that. We believe that. Because we are Yours. In Jesus' name, Amen.